You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for downloading episode number 171 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, welcome to the podcast. So with the last couple of shows, we've covered quite a lot as we transition from the Peninsula Campaign and the Seven Days to Second Manassas, which is the next major battle on the timeline. And as we make that transition, there are a lot of moving parts to keep track of as far as what was happening, especially for the Union. Right. There's the increasing tension between Abraham Lincoln and McClellan, and also between McClellan and Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, and between Little Mac and the new General-in-Chief, Henry Halleck, oh, and we can't forget the increasing tension between McClellan and John Pope. And then, after McClellan's failure at the gates of Richmond, there's the major shift taking place in the Union war effort, from soft war to hard war. Remember, the soft war approach was conciliatory, looking to restore the Union and bring the South back into the fold with as little fuss and muss as possible. With the hard war approach, however, the rebellious South was to be treated not as wayward, misguided colleagues, but as a deadly enemy, a dangerous foe, to be defeated, to be subjugated, vanquished, conquered, using every means at the government's disposal, including emancipation. And with all of that swirling about in the background, there were also the events taking place on the ground, the formation of the Union's new Army of Virginia, commanded by Pope, and the decision to pull the Army of the Potomac off the peninsula with the intention of forming a junction in northern Virginia between the two Union armies. And although it was uncertain just who would command that force, things weren't looking good for George McClellan, since Lincoln and Stanton would be happy to just park Little Mac on the sidelines somehow. But what, you may be wondering, was Robert E. Lee up to while all of that high drama was going on over across the lines? Well, the first order of business for Lee was to repair his battered army. Concluding that McClellan's encampment at Harrison's Landing was unassailable, protected as it was by the guns of the U.S. Navy on the James River, Lee, on July 8th, began pulling his army back toward Richmond, leaving behind only a handful of cavalry to warn of any menacing federal movement. In and around Richmond, the units of the Army of Northern Virginia were refurbished with tenting and other gear and equipment from captured enemy stores. 
There, Lee also undertook his main task, a thorough reorganization of his army, whose command structure had proved inadequate to meet the demands placed upon it during the Seven Days' Battles. At any one time during the Seven Days' Battles, between nine and eleven Confederate divisions had been in action. Too numerous for Lee to control during the campaign, those divisions tended to behave like independent little armies, often with barely any coordination between them. Lee meant to rectify that by making the divisions work in harness and be more responsive to his orders. Robert E. Lee realized that he could accomplish what he wanted by establishing several large commands to ensure that his orders were properly executed by their constituent units. To set up corps, however, Lee would have to circumvent a Confederate law that effectively prohibited the formation of any unit larger than a division. This law, which had been conceived primarily by states' rights advocates as a measure to maintain the authority of Southern governors over units recruited from their states, hadn't caused serious difficulties for Confederate commanders until the small actions of the early war escalated into massive campaigns, such as the Seven Days' Battles. Lee began working behind the scenes to get the constraining law repealed, a goal finally achieved that November. But without waiting for official sanction, he divided the Army of Northern Virginia into two wings, or commands, which he carefully avoided calling corps. As we said previously on the podcast, Lee chose James Longstreet, Old Pete, to lead one wing and assigned him five divisions to be commanded by Major Generals Richard H. Anderson and David R. Jones and Brigadier Generals Cadmus M. Wilcox, James L. Kemper, and John Bell Hood. Lee put Stonewall Jackson in charge of the second wing, but assigned him only two divisions, his own, now commanded by Charles S. Winder, and that of Dick Yule. Lee temporarily retained under his personal direction the division of A.P. Hill. The Army's cavalry remained under the overall command of Jeb Stuart, with the brigades of horsemen led by Wade Hampton, Fitzhugh Lee, and Beverly H. Robertson. Along with those organizational changes, Lee evaluated the recent performances of his officers down to the brigade level and weeded out those he considered inadequate or ill-suited to a flexible, hard-hitting army. As we indicated previously, this meant that Magruder, Uget, and Theophilus Holmes were either sent west or shuffled aside. Through it all, Lee repeatedly had to act as peacemaker in quarrels between certain proud and hot-tempered generals whom he wanted to keep. Perhaps the most sensational dispute was touched off when the Richmond Examiner published a glowing account of A.P. Hill's role at Glendale. Longstreet, Hill's immediate superior in that battle, took offense and had his adjutant write a response for the rival Richmond Whig. That so incensed Hill that he refused to speak with Longstreet, who thereupon had him arrested for insubordination. When they proceeded to arrange a duel, Lee stepped in and put an end to the whole affair. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. 
I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In all human history, there are few stories like that of ancient Egypt. On the banks of the Nile, these people created one of the most enduring and significant cultures. Their tale comes to life in the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore the tales of this amazing culture, from the legendary days of creation and the gods, all the way to Cleopatra, and everything in between. The History of Egypt podcast is written and produced by a trained Egyptologist. We go much deeper than your average documentary or magazine article to uncover tales of life, great endeavors, and the amazing arc of a mighty kingdom. The History of Egypt podcast is available on all podcasting platforms, apps, and websites. Come, visit Ancient Egypt, and experience a legendary culture. Robert E. Lee was not by nature a patient man, but he now had to play a waiting game as he evaluated the separate threats posed by Pope's and McClellan's commands. Each passing day, however, gave Lee increasing confidence that Little Mac wasn't going to renew his campaign against Richmond anytime soon. McClellan's continued inactivity at Harrison's Landing and news that Lee received on July 12th that Pope was moving made it clear to Lee that somebody needed to be sent to face Pope. Fortunately for Lee, the defenses that he'd constructed around Richmond made it possible for him to shift a sizable force to face Pope and still have enough troops left to make a static defense of the capital should McClellan start moving again. It wasn't difficult for Lee to decide whom to send to face Pope. His only lieutenant who had a successful track record in independent command was Stonewall Jackson. Lee had apparently decided to overlook Stonewall's abysmal performance during the seven days, treating it as an aberration, and instead rely upon Stonewall's track record in his highly successful Shenandoah Valley campaign, where he'd faced many of the same federal units and officers who now composed Pope's new command. For these reasons, Jackson was an ideal choice for the assignment of keeping an eye on Pope. While Lee was dealing with the complex, high-stakes strategic challenge posed by Pope's and McClellan's armies, he also bore the South's sense of outrage against Pope and the set of orders that Pope issued, which we talked about last week. As y'all recall, Pope's orders let Virginians know that henceforth the federal troops would live off the land, confiscating whatever food and supplies they needed. 
Also, local citizens would be held responsible for guerrilla attacks on Union soldiers, supply depots, and rail lines. Furthermore, any civilian caught making such attacks would be summarily executed without benefit of a trial. Southerners were outraged by Pope's decrees. Robert E. Lee also found Pope and his orders repugnant. Lee called Pope, quote, the miscreant and declared, quote, he ought to be suppressed. Lee took his outrage directly to the federal government. In a letter to Henry Halleck, Lee, speaking on behalf of Jefferson Davis, asserted that Pope and his lieutenants had assumed the role of, quote, robbers and murderers, and therefore, if captured, would not be accorded the usual considerations given prisoners of war. Moreover, if any civilians in Virginia were executed under the pretext of Pope's orders, then an equal number of commissioned federal officers imprisoned in the Confederacy would be, quote, immediately hung. Halleck refused to receive Lee's letter. We mentioned just a moment ago that Robert E. Lee received word on July 12th that Pope was on the move. In fact, John Pope was still in Washington, advising Abraham Lincoln and schmoozing with radical Republican politicians, but Pope did order Nathaniel Banks' corps to advance. Pope didn't have anything ostentatious in mind. He was actually just following up orders he had already been given. But by this small step, Pope set in motion a succession of events that would lead to one of the Civil War's biggest battles. We just kind of mentioned it in passing, so you guys might not remember, but when Pope had first arrived in Washington, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton had said that the initial task of Pope's new command, the Army of Virginia, was that it was to make an advance to Gordonsville. Well, by July 12th, Pope was just getting around to following up those orders. Pope ordered Banks Corps to advance to Culpeper Courthouse on the Orange and Alexandria Railroad. This move would threaten Gordonsville, 27 miles to the southeast, and Gordonsville was a vital rail junction. There, the Orange and Alexandria intersected with the Virginia Central Railroad, which linked Richmond to the Shenandoah Valley. That's what prompted Robert E. Lee to dispatch Stonewall Jackson to confront Pope. Lee really had no choice since Pope had in front of him Central Virginia's vital railroad network. And so while Lee and Longstreet would remain at Richmond to keep a watchful eye on McClellan, on July 13th, Jackson received orders to take Winders and Ewell's divisions, perhaps 14,000 men, and move to Gordonsville to, quote, oppose the reported advance of the enemy. Pope anticipated little Confederate opposition in the area, and on July 14th, he ordered Banks to send his small cavalry brigade, commanded by John Hatch, on a raid to tear up the tracks of the Virginia Central, east of Gordonsville. But instead of moving swiftly, as Pope ordered, Hatch took three days to prepare his expedition, complete with infantry, artillery, and baggage wagons. What was meant to be a lightning strike turned into a ponderous crawl. By the time Hatch reached a point ten miles from Gordonsville, Confederate troops had arrived to occupy the town in strength, and the raid was called off. This uninspired performance soon cost Hatch his command. 
Pope replaced him with one of his staff officers, Major John Buford. Buford was delighted to be given a field command and pleased with the accompanying promotion to Brigadier General of Volunteers. As you probably guessed, those Confederate troops in Gordonsville belonged to Stonewall Jackson. They had arrived on July 19th and upset Pope's plans to destroy the railroad lines in the area. As Banks' advance stalled, Pope continued to gather his forces. In fact, Pope himself wouldn't leave Washington and take the field until the very end of July, when he at last moved to concentrate most of his army in the area of Culpeper Courthouse. Meanwhile, Stonewall Jackson had been chafing at the bit for a chance to strike out at Pope's command. All he needed in order to go over to the offensive, he wrote to Lee, was a few more men, and he was about to get them. By July 27th, Lee had made the reasoned guess that McClellan would continue to sit tight at Harrison's Landing, so he ordered A.P. Hill's Light Division to join Stonewall. Y'all will probably recall that Hill's command was called the Light Division, not because of its size, but because of its speed on the march. Exactly. Hill's troops began arriving in in Gordonsville on July 27th. Hill's 12,000 men would almost double the size of Jackson's command and would allow Stonewall to take on the Yankees if the circumstances were favorable. But Robert E. Lee was apparently more than a little concerned that Stonewall Jackson's well-known penchant for secrecy and keeping subordinates in the dark as to his plans wouldn't go over well with the impetuous, hot-tempered Hill. So Lee, in his most tactful manner, wrote, quote, A.P. Hill, you will find a good officer with whom you can consult. And by advising with your division commanders as to their movements, much trouble can be saved you, end quote. Unfortunately, Stonewall chose to ignore Lee's suggestions. On August 3rd, Lee received news in Richmond that told him the time was right for Jackson to undertake a limited offensive. A promising young cavalry lieutenant named John Singleton Mosby had recently arrived from Fort Monroe at the tip of the peninsula. He had been released by the Federals in an exchange of prisoners. Mosby told Lee that Ambrose Burnside and 14,000 Federal troops, having reached the peninsula from the Carolinas, had been ordered to move farther north by water. Mosby concluded, and Lee agreed, that meant Burnside was heading up the Chesapeake Bay and the Potomac to reinforce Pope's army. Since that implied that McClellan was no longer a threat to Richmond, Lee gave Stonewall the green light to strike Pope before Pope was reinforced. Obviously, Stonewall still wasn't strong enough to confront Pope's entire army, but if an opportunity presented itself, he could certainly attack an isolated portion of Pope's command. Knowing that Jackson would have to use his own discretion and initiative as far as when and where to attack Pope, Lee simply told him, I must now leave the matter to your reflection and good judgment. At the same time A.P. Hill arrived in Gordonsville to reinforce Stonewall Jackson, John Pope finally joined the Army of Virginia in the field. His men had heard much from him the past month, and in the ranks there was, said one officer, quote, an intense curiosity to actually look upon him, end quote. 
Pope gratified them all by taking the better part of three days to inspect his army, but this apparently put him in a bad mood, since those who had observed him in Washington commented on the marked change in his demeanor. The business of fighting a chess piece war from Washington was over for Pope, and the business of handling large numbers of troops in the field took a quick toll on the new army commander. Still, John Pope was determined to live up to his promises of aggressive action against the rebels. As soon as he took the field, he began preparations for a move against Stonewall Jackson. On August 3rd, he told Halleck that, quote, Unless Jackson is heavily reinforced from Richmond, I shall be in possession of Gordonsville within ten days. On August 6th, Pope ordered his army to concentrate at Culpeper in the V of land between the Rappahannock and Rapidan rivers. From there, he could move against Stonewall Jackson. But actually taking on Stonewall would have to wait until Burnside arrived and until the Army of the Potomac reached northern Virginia from the peninsula. Halleck's order directing McClellan to withdraw from the peninsula was sent on August 4th, but for the Army of the Potomac to march from Harrison's Landing to Fort Monroe, load onto transports, sail up the Chesapeake, up the Potomac River, unload, and take the field in northern Virginia would take some time. In the meantime, a nervous Halleck warned that Pope should do little more than maintain a line along the Rapidan and Rappahannock rivers and await the arrival of Burnside and of the Army of the Potomac. Halleck wired Pope, saying, quote, Do not advance so as to expose yourself to any disaster until we can get more troops up. And so, while Pope simply moved to concentrate his command at Culpeper, the Union cavalry, lately organized into three brigades, fanned out in front of the army, covering the river crossings and watching Stonewall Jackson. And Stonewall, as we said, had been watching Pope, itching to strike the Yankees at the first opportunity. On August 7th, Stonewall learned of Pope's move toward Culpeper. More importantly, he learned that only part of Pope's army, the Second Corps under Nathaniel Banks, was currently there. Jackson decided to strike. He determined to start his forces that very day, march to Orange Courthouse, cross the Rapidan the next day, and attack Banks, his old adversary from the Shenandoah Valley, while Banks' 11,000-man force was dangling alone at Culpeper. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Second Manassas, 1862, Robert E. Lee's Greatest Victory by John Langelier. This is a book in Osprey Publishing's campaign series, and we've recommended other books in this series, and like those other recommendations, this one for Second Manassas is a good introduction to the campaign for those who are unfamiliar with it. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Speaking of the website, just yesterday we released the 43rd members episode, which we used to talk about the action at the Battle of Memphis in June 1862. As we mentioned before, we're in the midst of using the members' episodes to look at some of the events that took place in the summer of 1862 in places other than Virginia. 
And so next up will be the Battle of Secessionville, which also took place in June of 1862 and was the first serious Union effort against Charleston, South Carolina. And just a bit of foreshadowing, but it didn't go well. So the members of the Strawfoot Brigade can look forward to that. And a big thank you to the newest volunteers to enlist in the ranks of the Strawfoot Brigade, Anthony, Michael, Brecken, and Joachim. Thanks also to Spiritwood Music for permission to use their song, Midnight on the Water, as the music you hear at the beginning and end of every episode of the podcast. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you'll join us again next time when we look at the action at the Battle of Cedar Mountain. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.